fundamental to the relationship of, of God and people, whether you're a seeker, that is somebody who is um, just beginning a walk with God, or a top theologian, fundamental to God is curiosity about him. And we're going to spend a little time doing that this morning, thinking about him. But the youth are going to stay with us. And I think for, not, if not just this this morning, but the whole month of July. So I'm sorry, this is a big come down from Erica Saladino. I can't hang with Erica, but I will do my best to, uh, or Bob Schrader. Is he here this morning? I don't see Bob. But anyway, uh, I will do my best to, uh, to, to uh, hang with uh, Erica. It's a tough job, but we'll try. Uh, so as I was saying, um, you know, we sing these lyrics, these amazing lyrics, and they display a, uh, a kind of a, a life in God that are, you know, contained in certain ideas and certain words. And the lectionary readings for this morning alert us that there is a life in God. And those of you who are here often, you know that this is something that I emphasize greatly because there is no genuine faith, certainly not a faith that leads to followership. And of course, this is one of the big burdens of living in the day and age that we live in, and that is that faith is often reduced to cognition. It's reduced to giving mental assent to a few bullet points of doctrine normally having to do with somebody's theory of the atonement or something. Or, you know, people may wonder, do you have an adequate theory of the inspiration of Scripture? Or do you have an adequate theory about the Trinity and how the persons of the Trinity work without confounding them and all that kind of stuff? And for us, often, that's what Christianity has kind of boiled down to. And that rarely leads to any kind of followership where one is actually placing their life in God and following Christ. Those are completely different things. Would you not agree with me? Like, how many of you here believe in golf? How many of you actually play? Are you with me? And that is the difference between a kind of Christian beliefism, what I call sort of a beliefism, versus somebody who's actually trying to take on the practices of golfing. And just trust me, as somebody who's played off and on in my life, there is a big difference between believing in golf and actually being able to make that ball go where you want it to go. Did you hear that? There's a huge difference, there's an enormous difference, and there's an enormous difference between simply sort of Christian beliefs and taking on the practices that allows one to live the kind of life that we sing and that we read in these passages. But what these passages alert us to is that there is this life in God. Uh, when Isaiah talks about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not only a present and historic city, but Jerusalem in, in the Bible mostly is a symbol. It's a symbol of this richly interactive life in God. Let me say that again. Jerusalem, as it, as it, I mean, it is a historic place, but it exists, especially in a passage like Isaiah, it exists as a symbol, a symbol of this richly interactive life in God where one feels God's provision. Uh, Eugene Peterson gets it in the message by calling it a, a, a robust sense of well-being. Um, we've been reading Galatians in the lectionary the last few weeks. Paul talks about it, the same thing in terms of grace. So actually, when you think of Old Testament symbol of Jerusalem 
and the New Testament kind of theological concept of grace, they're really talking about the same things. This richly interactive relationship with God whereby you sense his action in your life. And so Isaiah talks about this action in terms of being satisfied and delighted, a sense of overflowing uh, abundance, peace, provision, comfort, all that comes from the hand of God. So remember, we've been saying that when we think of grace, we don't want to merely think of uh, grace being a potion for sin. Like, uh, you know, we, we just moved this week. Woohoo! the hunters moved. Um, so uh, yesterday or the day before or something, I was unpacking the, uh, the box with all the medicine and stuff in it, and there was one of those little tubes, you know, of triple antibiotic cream or whatever, you know what I mean? So if you cut yourself right, you put a little triple antibiotic cream on it, put a Band-Aid on it, you're good to go. That's the way many Christians think of grace. The grace has to do with my sin. But grace has so much to do with more than just our sin. It enables this life in God, this richly interactive life in God, which includes our boo-boos. It just can't be reduced to it. This is the vision that Paul sees, that Isaiah sees, that the psalmist sees. When the psalmist says, shout to joy with God all the earth, say to God how awesome are your deeds, I can guarantee you that psalmist is not merely thinking of the times that he has sinned. When he says, come and see what God has done, how awesome his works are in man's behalf, what he's talking about is, I feel and sense the hand of God or the action of God in my whole life so that it protects us from enemies. It gives us peace and provision and comfort and all the things that the psalmist and Isaiah talk about and that Paul means when he talks about grace, this richly interactive life in God. Now, when we think of the Galatians passage, and we're going to focus on this for a couple minutes here, it is true to say, though, that in the cross, we do see the highest expression of the action of God. I mean, in the Christ event, in what we call the Christ event, what, when, um, when theologians talk about the Christ event, they simply mean to talk about his birth, life, ministry, teaching, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, um, present-day ministry in heaven before the Father. That's what we mean by the Christ event. And, and of course, uh, right in the middle of that Christ event is death and resurrection, not merely death, because without resurrection, the death is meaningless. So death and resurrection are right at the heart of it, and it's resurrection that uh, demonstrates for always and forever the meaning and the affect and the work of the cross. So definitely right in the heart of all of human history is Holy Week, is death and resurrection and its meaning. And so when Paul now brings the book of Galatians to a close, he says, look, I want to tell you about the highest expression of God's action in your life. The highest expression, I mean, beyond simply provision and deliverance from enemies and all the things that Isaiah and the psalmist rightfully brag about, Paul wants to say, but the pinnacle of all that, he says, may I never boast, if you want to look at your passage there in your bulletin, the Galatians passage, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord. Now, what can he mean by that? I mean, that would be like somebody saying today, may I never boast except for in the electric chair. I mean, seriously, you need, I want you to just stop and think about this for a moment, because again, we theologize and we romanticize the cross. 
But I want you to stop and think for a minute. It was the most brutal, bloody form of execution possible at the time. Do you remember in the paper a week or two ago? I was shocked to see this story that somebody just got, elect, I mean, just got executed by firing squad. Did you see that? Was that real? I think it was real. I think it actually happened. By firing squad. I mean, doesn't that seem like so brutal? It must have been Texas or something. I'm just kidding. Um, but I don't know where it was, but I mean, you, oh, Utah, where they, they killed this guy by firing squad. Well, again, you, would never, you don't see people wearing T-shirts say, may I never glory except for in Utah in uh, firing squads. So what can Paul mean when he says, may I never boast? What he's talking about is, may I never boast except for in the most amazing possible action of God in any human being's life. Now, listen to what he says, though. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord, through which, and this is what's very important and what I hope will sort of seal the deal of us thinking about a richly interactive relationship with God and not merely God fixing our boo-boos. He says... Here's what happened. Here's why I boast, he says, in the cross of God. This is what happened through the cross. The world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. And this is where, again, we get to the idea what Paul's talking about here, what he's so rejoicing in. You know, Isaiah talked about provision and peace and and deliverance from enemies. The psalmist talked about how God was working in their life. What Paul sees in the cross is the ultimate of that, the ultimate freedom. So when he says, I've been crucified to the world and the world to me, just think of, it's like I'm demagnetized. What the, what, what, you, what the world used to pull out of me and attract me to that, like a magnet, that's now been broken in the cross of Christ. And the part of me that was attractive to the world and that pulled the world towards me in Christ, that, that magnetism that I was powerless over is broken. And so now I have freedom. And remember, freedom, not just deliverance from that world, but capacity to be a different kind of person. So now it's important to stop here for a minute, I think, and say this, that when the Bible talks about this amazing, rich, interactive relationship with God, where there's this amazing freedom, it doesn't mean that life never goes wrong. And when Paul says, for instance, that the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, I mean, you'll notice that the whole focus here obviously is on life. But what about death, for instance? I mean, talk about a problem. Talk about a bother. I mean, historically, in terms of all of human history, the biggest problem with human life has been death. So, well, what is death? What what does this happen? And so, if, if whatever Jesus did includes death, then it obviously includes the things like, well, why was my child born this way? Why did my sister die early in a car wreck? Why are there bad things happening in the world? Somehow what Paul's saying is that he's not saying that life never goes bad. He's not saying that you'll never be sad or depressed or grieve or have bouts with anxiety or fear or that you won't see injustice that you feel impotent in the face of. He's not saying that those kinds of things won't happen. He's saying that, that when we're in touch with the action of God in our life, 
We just simply don't experience those things, including death, the way others experience them. So again, I like the way Eugene gets it in the message where he's, when he, here's how he kind of understands Paul saying, the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, I've been set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. So then when he goes on to say then, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, what counts as a new creation, again, Paul's pointing us to a life a richly interactive, grace-filled, free life in God. Because circumcision and uncircumcision in this passage really are just two approaches to religion. It would be not much different for us saying, well, um, no, I think the right way to be a Christian is to be a Quaker and to have silent meetings. And someone else says, no, I think the right way to do it is to have a really loud rock and roll church and everybody rolling in the aisles or whatever the antithesis of Quaker is. Are you with me? That was the debate of Jesus' day and Paul's day. The debate was, is Jesus and then Paul leading us away from Moses? Are they leading us away from Abraham? Are they leading us away from everything that we know about what it means to be rightly connected with God? And circumcision was simply the symbol of that. It was the historic right. Circumcision was sort of the ancient Jews, what the cross and resurrection is to us. So imagine somebody trying to talk you out of a crossless Christianity. This is what it felt like to first century Palestinian Jewish Christians. Are you sure we're doing the right thing here? This was an honest, open debate. And Paul says, look, here's the deal. None of that matters. Right approaches to religion doesn't mean anything. What counts is the new creation. Uh, the message puts it this way, can't you see that the central issue in all this is not what you and I do, submit to circumcision or reject it. Can you see that? That even rejecting circumcision was doing something, right? Like, Like maybe you love the current president or the past one or the one before that, and that's a form of doing something. But if you really hate him and reject his policies, that's a way of doing something too, right? So Paul's saying, either way you look at this, whether you're fighting to accept circumcision or you're fighting to reject it, you're missing the point. Those aren't the central issues. The central issues is what God is doing. And what God is doing is creating something totally new, a free life. That's, what, that's how Peterson gets his business of a new creation. And so what Paul wants to do, what the psalmist is doing, what Isaiah is doing, is trying to point people to God and what he's doing creating this people who is free from these religious debates and and kind of religiosity the way we would think of it today. All right, so then what's that all about? What is that unto? And Luke tells us that this life, this rich interactive life with God in which a new creation is created, it's unto something. There's a role. So Jesus called the 12 to him and sent them out. Jesus calls the 72 to him and he sends them out. And he sends them out to do a couple of things. One, to heal the sick who are there. And two, to tell them that the kingdom of God is near. So what the readings are telling us this morning is that God creates a people and he creates them for something. He creates them, A, to be agents of healing. That, that is the fundamental purpose of the church. We are God's agents or ambassadors or whatever we want to say, announcing that the kingdom of God is near. Well, again, we've talked about what is the kingdom of God? It's the action of God. It's the rule and reign of God. And Jesus says, go tell everybody the kingdom of God is here. It's with you. It's near you. 
And so the 72 return, it says, you know, with joy, kind of astonished that, uh, that the demons are actually submitting to their name. And Jesus then says this very interesting thing, like, yeah, 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 I know. I saw Satan fall like a thunderbolt from heaven, like I get it. He says, but this is the deal. The great triumph here is not in your authority over evil. You have it, true. But the great triumph here is God's authority over you and his presence with you. It's not so much what you do for God, but what God does for you. That's the agenda for rejoicing, right? Paul's saying, look, you know, um, these things over religion, that's just, it doesn't really matter what we do there. What really matters is what God's doing in and through us. And this is the same point that Jesus is making. Yes, I'm going to use you. I'm going to call you into this richly interactive relationship with me. And then I'm going to send you as I sent the 12 and as I sent the 72. You're all going to be sent. But Jesus said, when you start seeing the fruit of that, that's a wonderful thing. But just remember, what's most real is what God is doing in you and that your name is written in the book of heaven, which just simply is a New Testament way of saying you have connected to this richly interactive relationship with God. And it's making a difference in this life and it will make the ultimate difference in the life to come. So name written in the book of heaven is simply a way of saying a connection with God, wherein Jesus said, he who liveth and believeth in me, though he die, what? Yet shall he live. And that is the sort of the final powerful action of the hand of God in someone's life is to actually deliver them from death. And Jesus says, that's what you need to constantly keep in mind what God's doing in you. All right, um, I think we have a slide we can uh, put up here that I want to show you of a, of a passage from Matthew 11 just in conclusion, by, by asking us this morning, okay, what if we really risked it all? What if what we've been reading about and singing about this morning, what if it's actually true? And, and what if we risked everything for it? There was a time in the Gospels where Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, and he's essentially saying the same thing to them and kind of asking them, you know, what would it be like, what, you know, if you're, do we have it? Yeah, so, so picture Paul you know, in this, you know, um, sort of massive intellectual fight with everybody about circumcision or uncircumcision. Now, so sort of picture the angst that was happening in Jesus' and Paul's day. Jesus said to one crowd of people, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. And this is maybe my favorite line in all the message. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the vision of the Bible. That's the vision that Isaiah and the psalmist and Paul's arguing for, that this richly interactive, personal relationship with God leads to a kind of life, a life in which he says you recover your life. That is to say, you'll find life as God intended it. He says, I'll show you how to take a real rest. I mean, someday we'll unpack this whole passage. I don't have time to do it this morning. 
But whenever I read that, you know, take a real rest, it just makes me think of all the false rests, of various addictions, and the things that people do to try to medicate the pain in their life. And Jesus says, come to me, get away with me, and I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, he says, work with me, watch how I do it. That's maybe the greatest invitation ever given to humanity. You need to actually think about that this morning. Jesus is alive. He's as alive today as he was 2,000 years ago in dusty roads of ancient Palestine. And he's inviting you to come follow him. To actually walk with him and work with him and learn how he does life with reference to his father and how he does life with reference to the rest of the world. Because when you put it right down at the bottom, Christianity, if it's not beliefism, well, what is it? At bottom, it's apprenticeship. At bottom, Christianity is apprenticeship to Jesus Christ. It's saying, I take my life and all that it is, I trust in this richly interactive relationship that the psalmist and Isaiah and hymn writers and others throughout the years have done, and I trust my life into it. And I believe that if I really do that, if I really risk it all on the life and grace and action of God that we've been reading about in Galatians the last few weeks, that if I really do that, if I really trust in the kingdom of God that the Gospels have been telling us about the last few weeks, if I really decide to be a follower of Jesus, that what will happen to me is this, that I will learn the unforced rhythms of grace, that I will discover the present action of God, the hand of God in my life, and that this will be deeply and personally true, and I'll be deep and personal friends actually with Jesus. This Jesus who says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. I'm not going to make you into a weirdo. But rather, if you keep company with me, you'll learn to live. And this life will be marked by freedom. This is what Paul's been arguing about all through the book of Galatians. It'll be marked by freedom and a kind of lightness. Now, again, it doesn't mean we're never sad. It doesn't mean we're never depressed. It just means that fundamentally... There's not the kind of oppression that people felt when they were constantly in fear of their enemies, when they were constantly in fear of of not having enough or constantly in fear of somebody harming them, that there's a fundamental lightness. And I just want to say, finally, um, this is the whole vision of everything that we're up to here at Holy Trinity. Nothing we're doing here matters if it's not... um, illuminating, articulating a kind of life that we discover and that we discover for the sake of Luke to be sent into the world as God's agents of healing and breaking the power of injustice and help and hope and and agents of of God's love. I mean, that's we are doing nothing other than that. Anything we do in liturgy, anything we do anywhere in any program, anything that we ever might do as a church, if it doesn't somehow help that happen, then we're probably not going to be doing it very long. Because the vision is there's this amazing God who's inviting us into this richly interactive relationship with him so that when that happens, we then become agents of that grace and freedom. Thank you for listening. 
For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.